Ah, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. It is Parshad Emor, which is, I'm not mistaken, is going to be, I think, the seventh or eighth Shabbos that we are not together. Um, and um, certain aspects of, to be honest, there are certain aspects of Corona that I'm enjoying because there's no question if I were to give a Thursday night Parshat Shavua Shir in Shul, I would not give the, get this a number of attendees which is uh, either says something about you or something about me. I, I'm not sure. But uh, I'm, I, I'm sure I'm competing with many other things this evening, so I do appreciate you. Okay, we're going to talk about Parashat Emor. You know, some fantastic ideas that come out of the parasha. So one, now, hopefully everyone can see the screen. I have shared screen, so just uh, the only, I can see, Richard, I can see you. The rest of I can't see. So give me a thumbs up. Can you see the screen with the sources on it? Yes, you can. All right, great. All right. So, Parashat Emor begins with the, um, the laws detailing various aspects of the Kohanic behavior. So it says, lo ba'amav, that a Kohen cannot become contaminated to anyone other than Kimle his parents, his children, his siblings, and his spouse. And then he can, and then it goes through also who he can and cannot um, be married to, cannot marry a grusha, a divorcee, a zona, which is usually translated as a convert in this context. And uh, <coughs> these are things he can. So the Kohen is something that like we ordinarily sort of like understand that the Kohen is a particular individual who's holy. But like why is the Kohen holy? So we know it's a descendant of Aaron, but like why did it have to be that way? I mean, firstly, why did you need to have a unique tribe that is somehow elevated all the, uh, above all the other tribes? And why specifically Aaron? So to distinguish this, that as far as tribes go, the Kohanim are not a tribe. They're a subsect, a small subsect within the tribe of Levi. So <coughs> the tribe of Levi'im were the only tribe that didn't um, take part in the golden calf. And that was the thing that sort of allowed them the, this privilege that, that through the golden calf, you know, the rest of us somehow um, were no longer fit to be able to serve Hashem in, in, the, in the temple. But the Kohanim, they, the, so the Levi'im, the Levi'im didn't, so they were elevated. And that's, that's the general, you know, understanding. But Aaron himself, who becomes the first Kohanim and his descendants are the Kohanim, so Aaron is an, indivi- is an interesting individual because not only did Aaron participate in the golden calf, Aaron was the one who built the golden calf. So, you know, if you're going to talk about a crime, so the guy who actually is the one who built the golden calf, not only does he not get punished, but he's the individual who gets elevated to become the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and all his descendants of becoming Kohanim, which is completely counterintuitive. He should have been completely rejected, thrown out of Klausra. Why does he get elevated? So to understand the golden calf, just a little bit in context, is that when Aaron built the golden calf, ultimately the goal of him was not to worship a foreign god, but to try and mitigate, and this is the way that uh, Rashi brings some others, is to try to delay what he felt was the inevitable. Moshe was coming down from Mount Sinai. There was a lot of panic and nerves within the, the, the Israelites down below. And he said, how do I delay you know, these people from worshiping proper idols. So he says, give me all your gold. Let's push it off. Um, <coughs> and tomorrow we'll have a festival. All the time, trying to buy some time in order that he should be able to n- not have to, you know, worship idols. Aaron's intent, which is that we, in Judaism, there are three mitzvot that one is 
has to give up their life rather than transgress. So the, the <coughs> one of them is idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, and murder. So Aaron is prepared to give up his life now because he should be giving up his life. He should be taking, you know, as far as crimes. What's the worst crime? To worship idols or to or to uh, allow yourself to be killed instead of worship idols. So definitely worse to worship idols. So you should not worship idols. You should rather die. Aaron says, I'm not going to die. I'm going to worship idols. Why is he going to worship idols? Because I need to protect the, Jew, the Israelites. Because if I don't, they will all worship idols, proper idols, and that will ultimately bring their downfall. So Aaron is prepared to sacrifice not only his Olam Hazer, but his Olam Abba. He's prepared to completely spiritually sacrifice his entire existence for the sake of the Israelites. That is what Aaron does. And Aaron is not only not punished for that, he's rewarded for that. Because what is the role of the Kohen? So if you think of like, so the Kohanim are not these people who sort of get, you know, privileges as, 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 a, as an ending of themselves that they serve in the temple and the like. But they are messengers. They're messengers from Hashem to us. And the messengers from us to Hashem, they're sort of the conduit between the two. That when we have, when we need to reconnect and rekindle our relationship with Hashem, so it's the Kohanim who facilitate that relationship. And the Kohanim who go on Yom Kippur and have to, the Kohen Gadol has to go into the Kodesh Kodoshim and, and ask Hashem for forgiveness. He's the one who has to go on, on behalf of us to say, Hashem, forgive B'nai Yisrael. So the Kohanim have this unique role where they are there to sort of act as a buffer in both directions between protecting us from Hashem and, protect, uh, and so to speak, reconnecting us to Hashem and reconnecting Hashem to us. So the idea of bringing Shalom between Hashem and B'nai Yisrael is the role of the Kohanim. <coughs> now, that is why Aaron, so if you are familiar with Pirka Avot, so the, in the first chapter of Pirka Avot, it says that Hillel said, you should be like the students of Aaron a Kohanim, or have shalom, v'rodef shalom, or have a mekavan Torah. should love peace, pursue peace, and bring people close to Hashem. Now, what is, how does that understand? So, so the Hillel explain the following about what Aaron would do. And this is something which I'm not sure it's the wisest thing in the world, but if you can pull it off, it's fantastic. He said, you see two people quarreling. So let's say uh, Bob and John were quarreling. And you go over to Bob and say, Bob, you know, John really wants to make peace with you, but he feels humiliated and he feels if he would even approach you that you wouldn't give him the time of day. But he's so sorry for that, which he did. And then he would, Aaron would go over to John and say, you know, Bob came up to me and said he is so remorseful of what he's done. He feels absolutely terrible. You know, he would just wants to make peace with you, uh, but he's too embarrassed. And then John would say to himself, you know, Bob feels that bad. I'll, make, I'll, I'll, I'll be the big one to go over. And John would say the same thing about Bob. And when they next saw each other, they would make shalom. And based on the halachi principle that muta shalom, it is permissible to lie for peaceful purposes. <clears throat> and so that's why Aaron becomes almost the, the prototype of the peacemaker within Judaism. And the peacemaker, where did he learn, where does that first manifest itself? Where he makes peace between Hashem and B'nai Israel. He's prepared to sacrifice everything, his Alamazen and Olamaba, in order that B'nai Israel can live in peace with Hashem. And that's why they become the Kohanim. And uh, they retain it. Now, just so you shouldn't know, there's an interesting Gomorrah that comes, uh, uh, this is not a Gomorrah, but uh, it's brought down in the tour over here. It says, 
שלא צומר כהן פלוני מגלה עריות או שופך דווים ומברכני. So this coin cheats on his taxes and he, he has immoral relationships and he eats treif and he's a murderer and everything. And this is the Kohen is going to give me a bracha. So you're going to stand at the Duchan. So often have we wondered, you're standing there and all the Kohenim, you know, they go up to the Duchan. You know, some of them, you know, have no idea what they're doing. But let's just say that even though they do not, they're doing this person, this is God, such an immoral individual. And he's going to give me a bracha. So it says, "V'omer lo Hakadosh Baruch Hu, v'omer lo Hakadosh Baruch Hu hu v'kihu mevarachecha halo ktivani varachem." Says the Kohanim don't give brachas. As much as we talk about it in such a way that to go get a bracha from a Kohen, reality is it's not the Kohanim who gives the bracha; it's Hashem who gives the bracha. The Kohanim are only conduits, and so that is what the role of the Kohanim is to be. They are servants. Now, as much as we like to elevate the Kohen, and it comes up in this week's parish, it says, that you should sanctify them, which we learn that <coughs> you have to, if you, uh, you've got to give the Kohen the first aliyah, you should sanctify him. And if you are benching and you're going to make a zimun, you should ask the Kohen to do it, you should sanctify him. And so you should do these things to make him, put him on an elevated level. But at the end of the day, the Kohen works for us, and he works for Hashem. So he works for us, and that's why the Kohen, when he gets to the land of Israel, he never inherits land, he never has home, he permanently works, lives on the charity of society, on the, on the tithes, on the truma, the mice and the like, on the sacrifice that we bring. That is what the Kohen makes his living on. Why? Because he works for us. And he works for Hashem, therefore the blessing he gives us is not his blessing, it's Hashem's blessing. So, you know, if a guy, I don't know, if a guy from the postal service comes and delivers your package, it doesn't matter how much you dislike the guy, as long as he brings you the package. So that's exactly what the Kohanim are. So these Kohanim are unique individuals who their role is as messengers of Hashem, they take on additional responsibilities. So Kohanim, like Jews in general, with, uh, to quote, um, to Stan Lee, see how well, we, uh, how well versed we all are on Stan Lee. So Stan Lee once said, with great power comes great responsibility. Don't know how many people know the reference other Stanley Stanley is the creator of Spider-Man but anyway so um, so he said with great power comes great responsibility and so it's just as the the Jewish people have enormous amounts of responsibility to be able to <coughs> and therefore with those responsibilities the things we can't do great power great opportunities great uh, potential but comes with lots of responsibility same to the Kohanim they are elevated in that sense that to be Kadosh means that you can't marry certain people and you can't uh, go to the funeral cemeteries and the like. All right. So the next, I'm going to skip the next one and come back to it because it's a fascinating story, but um, I don't want to go too belabored on it at the beginning. All right. So within the, the Jewish framework, the most important mitzvah in the Torah, so that you can argue, you can argue as much as this, is Vahafta Recha, Kamocha, love your neighbor like you love yourself, or and we can go on and forth. But ultimately, if you ask, what is the goal of Torah? And the answer is, the goal of Torah is to be a Kiddush Hashem. Now, what does it mean to be a Kiddush Hashem? So the word Kiddush, as we say on Friday night, means to, sac- to, sac- to make sacramental, to sanctify from Kadosh, to make, to sac- uh, to make something holy. So to be a Kiddush Hashem literally means to sanctify the name of Hashem. But the way it manifests itself practically 
is by role modeling what Hashem wants us to be. So the way the Gemara brings it out, <coughs> that a person who learns Torah and he, and he involves himself in mitzvot and he's a mensch of all kinds of menches, what do people say? So they say, well, not, wow, look at Bob. He's such a big mensch and you know he's Jewish. They say, look at Bob. He's such an unbelievable guy because he's Jewish. And what that means is that, <coughs> that his Torah, how great is the Torah he learns, how, God is, how good is the great, how wonderful is the God that he follows, that it produces this kind of thing. So if you look at it in school, so if you see kids from, with a school uniform, and the kid's an absolute mensch. So you could say, I saw this kid from X school and he's a mensch. Or you could say, do you see the menches that come out of that school? You should send your kid to that school. That is the ultimate of what a Kiddush Hashem is. A Kiddush Hashem is a person who behaves in a way, not that people are impressed with him or her, but rather they are impressed by the value system that they subscribe to, which has produced the characters that these are. On the, opposite on the opposite extreme is what we call a chilul Hashem. So that's the word you have on the screen. A chilul Hashem. To desecrate Hashem's name. So what does that mean? That means that you see a kid wearing a uniform who the kid is disheveled, he's rude, he swears, he's, he's unkempt. And you say, that school produces terrible kids. So same too, when you have a Jew who behaves in a certain way, people are not going to say, ah, you know, he's a crook. And he's Jewish. They're going to say he's a crook because he's Jewish. And that's the Chilul Hashem. And that is the greatest Avera in the Torah. And the greatest mitzvah in the Torah is that people, when you walk around, people don't say, well, he, you know, this guy, this woman is a, is a mensch. They say that the value system creates menches. I too want to be a mensch. So this mitzvah and, 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 and Avera come up in the parsha, And the way it's phrased is as follows. And you should guard my mitzvot and you should do them. Um, I am God. And you should not desecrate my holy name. Rather, I should be sanctified. I should be uh, a kiddush in the name in Yisrael. So the Ketav Sofer. The commentary that came in the, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 17, early 1800s. He says the juxtaposition is quite profound over here. If it just said, The meaning would be that you should, never, you should never desecrate the name of Hashem, you should always sanctify it. But it's not saying this. It says you need to keep the mitzvahs and do them, and you should not mechalal Hashem. That the more observant we are, the greater the risk for Chilul Hashem. And it is such a, a, a dangerous, you know, keeping mitzvahs is so dangerous for our interpersonal relationships because every mitzvah we take on means the lens and magnifying glass is on us much stronger. And therefore, our behavior is going to be scrutinized much more. When the person has no values and does, well, has, uh, does not preach or does not look like they live by any particular value system, so there's no risk that they can sanctify Hashem or curse, or be a chilul Hashem. But when a person is visually, we see that this is a person who lives a life claiming of pi piety. 
It's a person whose tzitzit are out, his payas are out, he wears a kippah, he keeps completely kosher, she wears long skirts, she's always sanua, but then they speak, you know, losh and horror, they speak badly of other people, they spread rumors and the like, so then it's exponentially worse. The more mitzvot you do, the more dangerous it is. And so the Torah comes and it says, you've got to keep the mitzvahs, but you have got to be so certain and so careful that by doing more mitzvot, you do not become a chilul Hashem. And um, <coughs> becomes a, a huge responsibility. You know, when I often get asked, you know, the most common question I get asked by, by non-Jews is invariably when I get into a lift and someone will say to me, you're Jewish, right? And I'll say, yes. And they say, do you mind if I ask you a question? Say so, yes, and it's always the same question. How do you get that thing to stay in your head? And invariably, especially you know, the question's getting harder to answer these days. You know, there's less to clip it onto. But the um the the reality is is with a kip on my head is enormous responsibility. Because now if I uh, if I double park and I and 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 I get out of the kippah, I'm not just the idiot to double parks. I'm the Jew. You see what these Jews, they think they own, you know, they think that they're the chosen people and they, they own the roads. So there's a, there's a lot more responsibility on our shoulders and therefore enormous amount of um, t- uh, respect we have to give to that. Um, just when I end off this lot, <coughs> the section, just by sharing another idea, there was this idea of Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem is so important to understand that ultimately it's not talking about you as an individual, it's talking about you as a representative. So it doesn't. So to say, if a person is a big mensch, um, that doesn't make them a kiddush Hashem. It only makes them a kiddush Hashem if the big mensch is translated into, well, if that's what Torah produces, and that's what a, a religious Jew is, then I want to be religious. That's what a kiddush Hashem is supposed to be. So there's a number of years ago there was a, a Shomer Shabbat Jew who played in the um, top level basketball teams in the Israeli league. And I remember having a conversation with a colleague of mine, and he said, "Well, it's such a such a kiddush Hashem, this guy playing basketball." So I said, "Why is it a kiddush Hashem?" He says, "Because this guy's from, he wears a kippah, and he plays in the top level basketball. It's an unbelievable kiddush Hashem." And I thought about it, and I said, "What are you saying when you say that? Like, if you if a guy you know gets a, wins an Oscar for best actor with a kippah on, so we say Mayim Bialik." Okay, Mayim Bialik is a, is a Jewish uh, actress. She was in, I think, the Big Bang Theory, and she's a Shomer Shabbat Jew. Shomer Shabbat Jew. Now, is she a Kiddush Hashem? Now, if you say, well, she's Shomer Shabbat and she's on TV and she's famous, that is not a Kiddush Hashem. Now, I'm not saying she's not. Maybe she does an unbelievable work. But what I said to this guy is that, are you saying that being from is a handicap? And this guy, despite the handicap of Frumkart, was able to play professional basketball. And that's what makes him a Kiddush Hashem. I said, what are you, telling about, what are you saying about Torah in that regard? You're saying that Torah is a handicap and some people are able to overcome the handicap and be successful despite being Frum? I said, that's not a Kiddush Hashem. You can never look at it. Judaism is a thing. Torah is a thing that makes our value system. It's a thing that creates our value system can't be the other way around that it is the thing holding us back from achieving in life. It is the thing that gives us success in life. So no question that a professional basketballer who's Shomer Shabbat 
has unbelievable opportunities to be a Kiddush Hashem. But just by being a professional basketballer in and of itself is not sufficient to make, uh, to make a Kiddush Hashem. All right. All right, next section. We are... Just ask you a question. Sure, Dave. I, I hear what you say, but I'm just wondering whether the concept of Kiddush Hashem is evaluated on the basis of a broad spectrum of, of uh, opportunities to, to practice that, or is it a single, a single factor? For example, take the basketball player that you, you spoke of. To me, if he's um, a, a good basketball player, the chances are he would be able to aspire to, to top country on, so he would, he would be chosen for the Olympics or, or whatever international game is. Now, if he said, I'm not going to play on, on, on my Sabbath, but for some reason he, he doesn't, um, I don't know, he doesn't, uh, uh, I'll example, he doesn't count the Omer every night. Is he, is he, does he get a negative mark for not counting the Omer, but a tip mark for not playing on Shabbos? I mean, how is he regarded? Listen, is, he a, is he a good example of what the Torah espouses, or is he a failure? Listen, I'm, I'm definitely not going to uh, be here and do the divine accounting. I don't know what people get, how many points people get, and the like, and I'm not in a, fan, a fan of the accounting system in general. Um, I think the essence is, and what would be, I suppose, a bit of a broader question, is who's to determine it? You know, if you've got someone out there in the street who hates religious people of all religions, and it doesn't matter what I do, people are going to hate me. They see me keeping kosher, they see me in a kippah, they're going to hate me. Of so maybe that's a, how can I be a kiddush Hashem if people are going to hate me before they even see my behavior? But with regards to it, I think the, the idea is, and just the theme that should be carried across, is what is the message that people get when they interact with this individual? It's not specifically what mitzvahs he's doing and what mitzvahs he's not doing. The question is, is what's the... When people engage with you, so people doing business with you, when they walk around, walk away from you, they say, he is so ethical in business. Now, if they say, this guy is so ethical in business, full stop, and he's Jewish, so there's a flaw in this guy's ethics because he is ethical. It's great that he's ethical. He's fulfilling mitzvah, but he's not conveying the idea that his ethics are not his. They are Hashem's ethics. I'm ethical not because don't give me a shkoyach I'm just doing what Hashem tells me to do and some people say if you want to be ethical you've got to follow Torah too that's what the Kiddush Hashem is so it's not specifically on any mitzvah per se it's much more on this whole idea of that people walk away from an encounter with you being enamored and inspired by Hashem not being enamored and inspired by you and vice versa all right, let's, uh, let's not belabor the point. Happy to take it afterwards. Let's carry on. All right. <coughs> so at the end of the parasha, there's an interesting story, uh, I'll bring it here at the bottom, of an individual who is not entirely uh, clear why, why, but there came out amongst the Israelites, one whose mother was an Israelite and whose father was an Egyptian. And a fight broke out in the camp between a half-Israelite and the certain Israelite. And the son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name in blasphemy and he was brought to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Divri from the tribe of Dan. And his place in custody till the decision of the Lord should be made clear to them. So immediately after it, the Torah goes into <coughs> the laws of uh, blasphemy. And uh, uh, blasphemy, it, it takes me 
for any Monty Python, you know, from the life of Brian, you know, this whole uh, stoning scene. I don't know if I've got any Life of Brian fans on here. I feel that my Monty Python's, you know, uh, references are always lost on Kilat Masada. So that's my, my only lament of our community is that my Monty Pythons are missed. But, so, what happens is blasphemy is one form of illicit speech. Now, blasphemy, from a Torah level, we don't really have nowadays because we don't know the names of Hashem. But there are definitely multiple different levels of speech that are prohibited according to the Torah, but are not necessarily um, prohibited for the same reason. So, for example, when you talk about speech that's prohibited in Torah, most people talk about Loshon Hora. Now, Loshon Hora is when you speak a truth about somebody else that's negative. So, it's not spreading rumors, false rumors. It says, uh, it's like, a, you know, Ruvain divorced Dina. So, you say, oh, did you hear Ruvain divorced Dina? So, that, that could be Loshon Hora. It's completely true. Ruvain's been thrown into jail for committing a crime. Okay, that is, uh, that is 100% true. And that would be Loshon Hora. Then you have Rechilut. Rechilut is being uh, just spreading rumors. Motzei Shemra is spreading false, you know, spreading false uh, rumors and the like. But there are other forms of speech that we have to be careful of that are brought out of this week's parasha, but are, are not brought out of this parasha, but are, are linked in this way. And I wanted to bring them down from uh, the Shari Tshuva. Shari Tshuva is a, is a phenomenal book that more, more fascinating than the book itself is the history behind the book. So in, we're talking around the 11th, 12th century. So the Rambam, Maimonides, wrote a book in the 10th century that, that he claimed you know, would be the, uh, you know, one of the greatest books for Jewish literature. But he also wrote a philosophical work called The Guide to the Perplexed. And the Gato Perplex was an incredibly conf- uh, confrontational book. It, 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 it was uh, very controversial in its time, so much so that the majority of the Jewish world banned it. And dare I say, in the majority of the Shivisha world today, it is still a banned book, the Gato Perplex. You can't, you can't, if you go into most yeshivas in Jerusalem, you will not see a, it on the shelves. Now, I don't want to go into what he said that was so controversial, but... The leading rabbis of the time demanded that not only people don't read it, but that the book itself be burnt. And one of the leading Jews of the time was a guy named Rabbi, Rabbeinu Yon of, of Gerondi of, uh, in Provence, provincial, uh, provincial France. And he went around and demanded that the Rambam's book be burnt. And at one stage, the, the Catholic Church at the time saw that the Rambam's books were being burnt by the Jews. And they saw it as a great opportunity. If we're burning some books, we might as well burn all the books. And they went and burned cartloads of Jewish texts. We read, a, there's a kinna about it, uh, one of the lamentations that we read on, uh, on, um, on Tisha B'Av. So lots of, and at this point, Rabbeinu Yonah realizes that this is a divine sign that he was wrong in speaking out so negatively against the Ramba. And he makes, takes an oath that on every pulpit that he preached against the Rambam, he would go back to that pulpit and recant all his earlier statements. And the messages that he learned out of that, he developed and wrote a book called the Sharei Tshuva, literally the Gates of Repentance. And he has a, it's one of the classical works on, on, on repentance. And he talks about over here. Our rabbis said, anyone who speaks vulgarly, um, even if you're sealed for a decree of 70 years of good, it will reverse to bad. 
meaning that there is different kinds of language that even if the terms, even if the words themselves are, are completely clean, but the content is problematic. So for example, um, excuse the term, but if someone tells a dirty joke, so dirty jokes might, on paper, every word is a clean word, but the insinuation or the uh, double entendres or whatever the case might be, these are things that are, that are, that are that just not appropriate to be said. These are bad words. So even though it's like, nowhere in the Torah does it say, thou shalt not say a dirty joke, but the whole idea of vulgarity is something that is completely counter to the value system. Now, it goes further. This is an account of this one who speaks vulgarly has an having inequity, as ungodly and wicked. For his abandoned left his sh- his abandoned and left shame and modesty, which are famous traits of the seed of Israel. And they went to the traits of brazenness, which are the trait of the evil boy. So there's a language idea that we need to maintain um, a certain level of dignity in the content of our conversation. Even if it is not Loshon Hora, and it's not uh, spreading rumors, and it's not using swear words. Then he carries on. And furthermore, a person should never speak in a disgraceful manner. And it quotes, so he quotes a verse from the um, safe, <coughs> from uh, Parshat Noach. So when Hashem commands Noah to take all the animals into the ark, he says you should take the animals that are pure, and you should take the animals that are not pure. But rather than saying that are not pure, we could say that are um, how does it translate? You could have said that they were um, impure. So it says that instead of saying that the animals that were not pure, you could have said the impure animals. So it says that the Torah went out of its way, added in an extra few words in order to be able to, at times, to be able to use clean speech. That there is a way of speaking that one does not have to be you know, disgraceful. One does not have to speak in terms that are negative. One can speak in positive ways. Now, the last one I want to go is in this last word. And in the matter of honorable phrases is the path of words and speech that's tread upon those of clean intellect and speak with clarity. The last area of speech that he talks about over here is dignified speech. That there's an element that even if what you're saying is, um, is, is not vulgar and it's not swearing and it's not Lashon Hora, there's still ways that B'nai Torah, that, that holy people are supposed to speak. So, for example, um, and, and this first is certain levels of slang. So, slang is definitely not rude. Most of the time, uh, we, we farm with slang. But if you were to hear someone of, in a dignified position speak with the kind of language that you use on the golf course, you say that's just not appropriate. Rabbi has come and says that there's a certain um, elegance of speech that a refined individual should be trying to master. And we should all be refined individuals. My late Rosh Hashiva of Aaron Lichtenstein Zal, so he had his PhD in English literature. So every time he opened his mouth, it was pure poetry. And I always think to myself, would, you know, if Rav Lichtenstein stubbed his toe, what would he say? So not only would he not swear, but I don't even think you'd say, oh, fiddlesticks. You know, the ability to be able to be composed and say that even when, like I don't need to use such language to be able to be refined. There's such a, such a, a, a sense of dignity of an individual who doesn't need to use you know, coarse language, doesn't need to use vulgar language and doesn't need to use even slang or jargon and can just speak in a way that is, that is, that is, uh, is clear and is wholesome. And that is what Rabbi Yonah says. So not only, so we go there from the, um, 
from uh, initially from the um, sorry from the Megadev, from the the guy who cursed the name of Hashem, all the way to the fact that we should um, be trying to speak in a way that tries to root out even the slang and the coarse words from our our, our language. Now, um, carrying on in that in that story, when this man, <coughs> there are two stories that sort of. Um, Parallel one and the Chumash. One is this guy who, who cursed the name of Hashem. And the other comes immediately after the story of the spies. When the, when the 12 spies go into Israel and they come back and bring a bad report. And they are, the whole of B'nai Israel are sent to be uh, one to the deserts for 40 years. There's an individual who was what's called a Mekoshesh Etzim. And it comes here in Numbers. It says, once the Israelites were in the wilderness and they came upon a man gathering wood in, on the Sabbath day. Those who found him as he was gathering wood brought him before Moses and the whole community and he, and he was placed in custody. So here was a guy gathering wood is uh, one of the prohibit, prohibited things to be done on Shabbos. And so this guy was breaking Shabbat so they placed him in custody. So these are two individuals that we see placed in custody. So Rashi, and our Parashat says, and they placed him in custody, Levado. So this is regarding the guy who cursed. We play, they placed him in custody by himself. But he did not place, they did not place the guy who blasphemed and the guy who collected sticks together in quarantine. Even though both these stories happened at the same time, in the same period, so both these individuals were under arrest at the same time, they were held separately. So why on earth were they held separately? Like what's the, what's the chap? So I saw a beautiful idea, which is something which is, we have to consistently remind ourselves. And that is just because people might do similar crimes doesn't mean that they're similar people. The whole idea of seeing people within the context, invariably, most people will be judged, you know, most many people get judged by the worst act they do in their life. And unfortunately, that's a monkey they have to carry on their back for the rest of their lives. But the reality is that we are the sum total of all our life experiences that we've had, both positive and negative. And even though we might do the same thing as other people, you can't say we're the same person as other people. That these two people committed crimes, one blasphemy and the other breaking Shabbos, means that yes, both of them have committed capital crimes. But it doesn't mean that they're the same kinds of people. And you have to be able to look at people and see them in context. The, the nature of us, you know, time has changed. I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, um, the bad guys were bad and they knew they were bad. And the good guys were good and they knew they were good. Nowadays we see movies, it's not entirely clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Or the, you know, you have series where, where the bad guys are, are shown to be the good guys, you know, where the criminals are the, are the heroes and, and, and the police force are the bad guys and the the government are the bad guys, and sometimes it's the other way around. It's very hard to know who's good and who's bad. But I think what that does, what that has allowed us to show us a certain depth in personality, that you cannot judge a person by his actions. You know, there, we see this throughout the Torah, that a person has to distinguish between who a person is and what a person does. So we all do bad things, but doing bad things doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. Because the reason you did the bad thing might be due to circumstance, maybe due to situations, stresses, pressures that we, we, we cannot see. But we have to appreciate that doing bad doesn't necessarily make you bad. And so they, they, wanted, they wanted to understand this. That's why you didn't put these two people in jail together. 
Because even though they might have both committed terrible crimes, you cannot say that they were the same kinds of people. You have to be able to give them a certain level of depth. All right. Final piece for this evening <coughs> is, uh, comes in the late in the Pasha, where it starts talking about the Ner Tamid. So it's talking, you should go and you should command everyone to bring pure olive oil uh, for lighting. To light up the ner tamid. So we all know from a shul, the ner tamid is the candle that is usually on top of the bima. And it is always called the ner tamid. And the reason it's called the ner tamid is because it never goes out. So the word tamid in Hebrew means one of two things. It actually means always. But like English, uh, Hebrew, the, what, what does always mean? So always uh, can mean all the time, 24-7. So 7-Eleven is always open. Okay, That would be true. But always can also mean consistently. That I do, you know, I, go to, I always go to the gym. So always go to the gym. It doesn't mean you're at the gym 24-7. It means you go every day. So that's what always means. So what does it mean in the context of Torah here? When you have the Olat, the Ner Tamid. Is the Ner Tamid, is it the, the uh, eternal flame, the always flame? It's the flame that is never extinguished. It is consistent. It is lit all the time, permanently. Or does it mean that it is consistently lit? So for example, we have, we have the sacrifices that we offer every day in the temple. It's called the Olat Tamid. And the Olat Tamid was definitely not a consistent sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was offered consistently, not continuously. So what does it mean over here? So Rashi says, It means from night, from evening to evening. <coughs> so from evening to evening. So the, the Ner Tamid does not mean the, the continuous flame, but rather the, the continual flame or the consistent flame. It would be relit. So there's an idea brought in Gemara Manachot, which is based on a, so it's based on a verse that comes out of Joshua, the book of Joshua. It says, Ava Amar Rebi Ami, Midirav Shreb Yossi Nilmad, Afilu Loshana Adam Ele Perkechad Shachir Veperkechad Aravit, Kaya Mitzvat Lo Yemushtef HaTorah Zemi Picha. So one of the first commandments that is given to Joshua after Moshe has uh, retired from the leadership is this Torah should be in your, you should not allow it, to not uh, remove yourself from it, for, and it should be in your mouth, it should never leave you both morning and night. So Rav Ami says, that even if you just learn a little bit in the morning, and you learn a little bit in the evening, it's as if the Torah has never left you. Okay? So even though you haven't learned all day, so similarly to say, you've got to learn the Torah, Yom Anvalayla, all day or night, so it sounds you've got to sit in front of the Torah, all day or night, says, says Ravami, no, no, you don't have to be all night, as long as you've learned a little bit in the morning, and a little bit in the afternoon. I'm a Rebbe Yochanan, it's not only do you not have to learn all day long, you don't have to learn at all. If you say the Shema in the morning, and you say Shema in the evening. Shema is part of the Torah. So since you said the Shema in the morning and evening, Kayim lo yamush. You have fulfilled the mitzvah of not allowing the Torah to depart from you. So 
So what on earth is that saying? So, so the Torah comes and says, you should learn Torah all day long, all day, all night long. It should be with you permanently, 24-7. And comes the rabbis, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and says, you know what? As long as you said Shema in the morning and Shema in the evening, you fulfilled the mitzvah. He says, I guess I fulfilled the mitzvah. Saying Shema takes, well, I don't know, a, a couple of minutes. So out of a 24-hour day, a few minutes, five minutes, I've been saying Shema. And you say, and it says, if I've learned all 24 hours, that's crazy. So I think, I think the, the way to understand this is as follows. Is that we all benefit from the concept of consistency. Consistency allows, not only is it something that creates a certain level of discipline within our personality that, that makes it a regular, regular occurrence in our behavior and we see benefits from it. But when we do something regularly, consistently, it transforms our personality. So when a person is, you know, learning in the morning and learning in the evening, we're saying Shema in the morning, Shema in the evening, it's not a matter that he's only learning in the morning and the evening. It's a matter that though consistently every single day, it starts becoming part of who the individual is and they carry it with them throughout the day. Consistently, consistency leads to continuously. So that's why there is such, and, and we see this with, so like, what is a, a healthy individual? Healthy individual, a fit individual, it's not a person who's running 24-7, but a person who's consistently doing exercise will become a fit person all the time, not just while they exercise. You run uh, for half an hour a day. It's not that for half an hour a day you fit, but it transforms your whole existence. And the same thing with learning. If you can come with learning, and that's the context that it's talking over here. And you create consistency. You will, uh, you will create. You will become. It is. You will become the person that is doing this continuously. So the word tamid means both. It doesn't have to mean either or. It doesn't mean like either you do it consistently or you do it continuously. What the Gemara is trying to teach us is that by doing something consistently becomes part of your personality continuously. And so that's why this whole idea that, you know, to, to do things on a consistent basis, whatever skill it is you want to learn, you know, whatever achievement what is by doing it in incremental, consistent uh, means has a far greater chance of success than trying to cram in any particular case. So we can't cram for life and we can't cram in any skill set and uh, definitely in personal spiritual development, we can't cram either. All right. Um... I'm going to leave this story. It's, a, it's an interesting story, but I'm going to leave it. It's going to just get a little bit uh, too heated. But maybe one, one last halachic element, which I'll just divert for a second. So we start off with the koanim. So, <coughs> so it just is interesting something to ponder. So koanim, as we know, are not allowed to um, con contaminate it to the dead. They're not allowed to come in contact. So what about koanim saving people's lives? So there it's quite obvious, you know, to save a life, um, there's, a, there's a mitzvah, that it, it overrules every other mitzvah in the Torah. So if saving a life, if I'm, you know, whether it be a surgeon or just be someone, you know, if I'm going to try to save someone from drowning and just say I'm trying to save them, they drown in the interim and die. So you still got to do it because this is what Pikuach uh, Nefesh, it overrides the rules of the Kohen. So you definitely have to do that. But what, what about, and this is a, a fascinating discussion. What about Tehiyata Meitim? I'll put this over here. The resurrection of the dead. Now this is going to be a, 
a bit of a, a bizarre question, but it has a lot of interesting halachic ramifications. When someone passes away, are there any mitzvahs associated with them at all? So generally speaking, we say that when people, when people have died, they can't fulfill mitzvot anymore. It's one of the reasons you have to tuck in your tzitzit when you go to a cemetery. And uh, there are no more mitzvahs anymore. The person's passed on. The time for doing mitzvahs is while we are alive. There's no more mitzvahs to do once you've passed away. Okay. So can you donate organs after you've passed away? So I've got your organ donation. So you ask any, you know, you know, person in the world, they say, most rational people would say, of course you can. You don't need the organs anymore. And uh, you can uh, save a person's life. He says, but I'm dead. If I'm dead, I have no more mitzvahs. So I have no mitzvah to save a life anymore. Why do I have to save a life? People have to save a life or people are obligated to mitzvot. I don't have a, I'm not alive anymore. So do I have to, uh, so why do I have to, um, why do I have to save a life? And there are people who use such arguments that once a person's passed away, there are no more mitzvahs. So you can't say that there's a mitzvah to donate organs after, you, after you've died because there's no mitzvahs to you at all. And therefore you should be buried intact. That's the logic. But where the question comes is, and it becomes, uh, and maybe I'll just quote this story. So <clears throat> Elijah the prophet, according to the Gomorrah, at least one opinion in the Gomorrah, Elijah the prophet was a Kohen. So why is that interesting? Because there's a famous story of the Shashunamit that uh, there was this one woman whose child had passed away and she called to Elijah and said, please come help me. And Elijah came in and he lay on top of the boy and it appears that it is some form of mouth-to-mouth you know, mouth -mouth resuscitation of sorts. That seems to be. It says that he lay on top of the boy and pressed his lip against the boy's lip and he brought him back to life. According to the text of, uh, in, in Sefer Malachim, he brought him back to life. So the question is, is hold on a second, if he's a Kohen, uh, how can he go bring him back to life? He's not allowed to be in the room of a, he's not allowed to be in the room of somebody who's passed away. So how is he allowed to go in? So he says, well, he was, he was going to bring him back to life. Isn't that the same as Pikuach Nefesh? So as I said, this is a bit of an esoteric uh, question and argument. That if a person's passed away and I have the ability to bring them back from the dead, is that the same as Pikuach Nefesh? Because pikuach nefesh is saving somebody from dying, not once a person's already died and brought them back from the dead. So if, I, if, if a doctor is working on somebody and the person flatlines, they are dead, and you feel there are a few moments that I can bring them back. Now, I see we have a number of doctors on the course, so I'm, I'm not going into the medical thing. But let's just say the person is clinically dead, but I can bring them back. The question is, is uh, what is this? Is this pikuach nefesh? Can I break Shabbat for it? Because the person's dead, you're not saving a life. You're creating a life. You're bringing back the life. So uh, pra practically, for all tens and purposes, we say yes, but this is the question that the Gemara asks about Chiyat Amaitim. Is it considered the same uh, idea of Pikuach uh, Nefesh? Anyway, I, I did say I'd leave it at the end because it gets a little bit esoteric and complex, but I hope there are a few other bits and pieces that you are able to draw out of this, uh, this evening's shir. I wish you all a good Shabbos. Thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you next week. Shabbat Shalom.